Welcome to the Vertical Church Podcast. Now, here's today's message. Well, last week we started a series called, What Makes You Happy? And you know, I struggle with this word a a lot, and I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, um, what makes you happy. Uh, Because, you know, the word happy really isn't used in Scripture at all. It's kind of one of those concepts that we take. And one of the places that we take it from is the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to talk a lot about the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most, um, the most popular sermon. A lot of people say probably the most important sermon that Jesus ever delivered. And it's a time where he just sat around and talked to people. And man, I wish that I could just sit down and y'all could like be sitting around me and we could just talk. Because I think the Lord has something to say to us today. Well, last week, Pastor Josh told us that happiness is more about a who than a what. Sounds kind of like a Dr. Seuss book. You need a couple of who's and no what's. But, you know, when you think about being happy or the happiest moment of your life, there are some people that happiness is more about a who than a what. In other words, God doesn't want you to be happy. How many of you have you ever heard this? God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. Who's ever heard that? Come on, if you've been in church at all, you've heard that. He doesn't want you to be happy, he wants you to be holy. So basically, you can't be holy and happy, right? That's what people, oh yeah, you're right, got it. You're way ahead of me. You know, I think about the song we all learned as kids, if you're happy and you know it. See, if if God doesn't want you to be happy, he wants you to be holy, he would say, if you're happy and you know it, repent. Because you ought not to be happy. That's not what... God wants. Well, we know that that's, there's nothing further from the truth than that. And so what we're discovering is that while happy may seem to be the opposite of holy or the opposite of godly, maybe you can't be Christian or be happy. Well, that's just nonsense. It's just nonsense. You, you may have thought as you were going through your Christian life, if you're a younger Christian or if you grew up in church and maybe stepped away from church for a while, you would, you would say, I'm either going to be a good Christian or I'm going to be happy. I hear that all the time. I hear it all the time. But it's a false dichotomy. The the two are not mutually exclusive. Because Jesus himself defines happiness. And and we're going to hear all about that definition today. Not only can you be happy and be a Jesus follower, Jesus says that he knows more about happiness than all of us put together. And by all of us, I don't mean just us in this room. I mean the entire planet. He knows more about it than we do. God created us with an immense capacity for joy. Joy that comes in relationship with Jesus. So today, we're going to move along in the series, and we're going to look at the words of Jesus in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. So, how many of you have heard of the, the Sermon on the Mount? You can just nod your head. Yeah, Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's a really important time that Jesus sat around and talked to his followers. But if you grew up in church, you heard the whole... Uh, beatitudes. You've heard that word, the beatitudes, because they all start with a B. Blessed. Not blessed, but blessed are the. Blessed is the. Blessed. But in today's vernacular, we say blessed. Because, you know, we're from the South, and we don't say blessed. We say blessed. But in this message, essentially, Jesus answers the question. That very question, what makes you happy? He doesn't answer it like what should make you happy or what you need to do to make you happy. He says this makes you happy. If you will listen to the words that Jesus is saying and you do what he says, 
Notice I said do what he says, not just listen, but do what he says. And we'll talk about that more in a minute, too. Then you're going to find the kind of happiness that you never thought was possible before. This is what happy people do. This is how happy people behave based on what Jesus says. So blessed are these people. This is what he says. I just said blessed, didn't I? It's a habit. I'm telling you, sometimes I just break out into King James, King James English. Because, you know, every scripture I learned, every Bible verse I learned growing up was in the King James Version. So I'm full of thou's and dies and arts and all that kind of stuff. Blessed are these people. There's eight blessed categories. And our temptation was to take each one and view each one in an individual week because there's so much there. We could spend eight weeks on just the Beatitudes, and we would have plenty to spare. But we're not going to do that. I'm going to hit all eight real quick. I promise I'm not going to keep you here until 2 o'clock. I've got my clock set so I can get you out of here on good time. But I'm going to hit all eight real quick, and this is what I want you to pay attention to. There's something that's really important that's going to come from all eight of these. I want you to pay attention to the common denominator. What is each one saying individually and together about what it means to be happy? What do all these things have in common? So I'm going to read through these verses, make a few comments along the way, a few things to say. Then we're going to sit back and say, what's the big picture? What's the main point that Jesus was trying to make about happiness? And then we're going to wrap it up and have a good, good time of prayer together. So here we go. Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Here's how it begins. Here's, here's the context. It's going to be up on your screen. If you don't have a, um, a Bible to follow along, it's going to be up on your screen. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples, and again, in the New Testament, there's three groups of people that follow Jesus. You have his apostles. Those are the 12 guys that we talk about, Matthew, Mark, you know, all those guys. We talk about them quite a bit, the 12 apostles. But then there's this, the disciples, and these are men and women that are following Jesus around everywhere. They're, they're kind of hanging on his every word. They're traveling with him. They're helping do ministry with him and all of those kinds of good things. And then there are the crowds. These are hundreds, sometimes thousands of people who are following around and kind of learning from Jesus. So he went up on the mountainside, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. We know that he repeated the content more than once, and what he did choose to preach in this um, most famous sermon about happiness, he said, Blessed are, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Man, right out of the box, he just hits us. Right out of the box. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus addresses the biggest, one of the biggest myths as it relates to happiness in our culture today. How do you know this? This was 2,000 years ago. And right off the bat, he's like, look, there's this idea. You know, how many of you heard about this kind of lottery thing? Anybody buy a ticket? No, you don't. Don't raise your hand. I did. You know, I didn't win, and neither did you, because nobody won $1.3 billion. Come on. But how many of you sat in your car, driving down the road, laying in your bed, thinking, oh, what would I do with that money? You know you've done it. I did it. My, my son said, Dad, who would we buy a house for? I said, Me. <laughs> 
He's like, duh, Dad. I know that, but who else? He's his mother. It's awesome. But we have this idea that rich people are happy. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus said rich people aren't happy and poor people aren't happy because they're rich or because they're poor. Let me tell you who's happy. The, the happy people are those who are poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge that no matter how much you have or how little you have, everything comes from God. Everything comes from God. Every single minute of every single day, all that stuff, all those people in your life, all of it comes from God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those that have little or have a lot or have something in between, but they wake up every day and say, God, I'm so, I, I am no less dependent on you today than when I had absolutely nothing. Those who are poor in spirit live every single day as if they are dependent on the Heavenly Father for everything. Because here's the thing. Some of you have learned this the hard way. Perhaps some of you are on the verge of learning this the hard way. The moment you put your trust in riches, whether you're wealthy or poor, the moment you put your trust in riches instead of in, in the one who richly provides, you're unhappy. And you're not going to find it in those places. You're just not. Man, Jesus smacks us on the head, right? At, especially after the big old lottery. Because yeah, lots of y'all plan to go buy some tickets. And that's okay. I don't care about that. But the point is, the moment you transfer your trust from the Heavenly Father to your riches, or lack thereof. And by riches, that could be opportunities. It could be relationships. It could be education. It could be what you have, what you own, what you borrowed for where you live, what you drive, all that stuff that we use to build our worth, our self-worth, our self-esteem. Not our monetary worth, but our self-esteem. We find our self-esteem in how much money we have. And there's some of us in the room that are saying, well, I don't have any, so it's easy to say. I don't have any. Well, I, I get that. Believe me, I get that. But God no less provides for those of us who have no money than he does for those, those who do. I know a, real, a whole lot of miserable wealthy people miserable and I know a whole lot of miserable poor people because when you're rich or poor but you transferred your trust to your riches suddenly it's up to you to control outcomes and guess what you can't you can't control outcomes that's completely out of your job description that's not what we do we do what we can do God does the rest and when we put our trust fully and firmly upon him, boy, that's a weight off of us. We can go about the business of loving our family and loving people and serving and doing what we can to help others and realize that God, when, we, when we're faithful to what God is and who he is and what he's done for us, he is unbelievably faithful to us. And what's funny, he's often faithful to us even though we're not faithful to him. Man, how much better is that when you fully buy in? When you don't just hear the words, but you actually buy in and trust. But this is why you've met unhappy poor people. You've met unhappy middle class people. You've met unhappy rich people. Anyone who's feeling the burden of it's up to me is by definition unhappy. And Jesus, tell, Jesus says, let me tell you who 
the happy people are. They're rich, they're in the middle, and they're poor. They're people who are poor in spirit who recognize that they are as dependent on God for their provision as they ever have been. The poor in spirit do not attempt to find ultimate satisfaction in things because things aren't an option. God is the option. At the end of the day, my confidence is not in stuff. My confidence is in the one who provides the stuff. Whatever the stuff is, whether there's food on my table, gas in my car, health of my family, God provides all of that. And I just don't want to slowly transfer my trust to my ability to make money, to save money, to bolster my career. I just don't want to do that. That gives me way too much responsibility. I do what I can do and God does the rest. Jesus said, you want to be happy? The happy people are the people who are poor in spirit. They recognize that at the end of the day, they are completely and totally dependent. And there's nothing wrong with being dependent on God. Man, that's just the first one. We got some more. It's, this is so unbelievably deep and rich and fruitful. But he goes on to say, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What? You're talking about mourning and happiness in the same sentence? Yeah. Blessed are those who mourn. Do you know who mourns? It's not just people who um, are necessarily have just recently lost a loved one. Mourners are people who are emotionally connected. People who recognize and don't hide from and don't run from the fact that there are bad things in the world. Bad stuff happens. There's unjust things in the world. There's randomness in the world. And they're willing to walk into those moments of death and sorrow and, yeah, grief. And they stay there and face it full on and embrace the fact that this is actually a part of life. They're not afraid of it. Why are they not afraid of it? Who are they dependent on? God. God. You know, my best friend, many of you saw on my Facebook post, my best friend, his wife um, is at the very end of her cancer battle. I had a long conversation with him the other night, and I'm listening to him, and he's talking, and he's like, you know, we're talking about his wife's funeral. She's 45. She has four little kids. We're talking about his wife's funeral. I'm like, okay, you know, this is what best friends do. We're walking this journey together. And then he says, I'm going to preach. <laughs> I'm like, really? He said, yeah. I said, you really think you're going to be able to stand up there and, and, and preach your wife's funeral? He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And nobody knew my wife like I did. And so there's no one that can proclaim the name of Jesus about her life better than I can. So why would I shy away from that? I may cry, I may weep, I may break down, but I'm going to be in the community of believers who will lift me up. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. I was writing the sermon. i got to tell you, I cried a little bit. The fact is, in our culture, death is so sanitized for us. It's so sanitized. I don't mean just physical death, death in general. I mean, we see it on television every day. Every day. I mean, my, my three-year-old, my almost three-year-old, talks about, you know, you, I mean, she plays this game. I'm dead. I'm dead. They stick your thumb out. 
it's so sanitized. We don't really have any kind of concept of, of truly what it means to mourn. But Jesus says if that's your attitude toward death, you'll never be happy. Because the fear of dying, the fear of death, will rob you of living. It will rob you of life. The person that is not willing to fully embrace the reality that all of our lives are bookended. Everybody, we can't get away from it. I mean, we saw a new one start yesterday. The, the first bookend was late. It's awesome. But eventually there'll be another one. You've got to be willing to face it, to feel it, to endure it, and be part of it. You'll find contentment and happiness there. Because where is our trust? Where is our confidence? Yeah, this is heavy. Just take a deep breath. It's going to get lighter again in a second, I promise. Mourners who are, who are fully confident and reliant on Jesus, they don't dwell. Because there's something in front of them all the time. They've given themselves to the reality that there's more to this life than whatever their current experience is. Blessed are those who mourn. But Jesus goes on to the next one pretty quickly. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, our response to this word is almost always negative. I mean, I'm the father of two girls. Do I really want my daughter marrying some meek little guy? <laughs> Would you want your daughter to marry him? Because we have this idea of meekness as weakness. But that's not what it means to be meek. Here's what meekness is. Now, it's kind of a wordy definition, so just bear with me a second, okay? Meekness is a proper estimation or understanding of one's self within the broader context of God's creation. Now, let me simplify that for you. It's not always about me. That's what it means to be meek. It's not always about me. In other words, a meek person is a person who faces the reality about who they are, that they are part of God's broader creation, and that God is up to something in the world, and we get to be a part of it. It's not about us. It's about Him, and we get to come along for the journey. Meek people understand it's not about me. Meek people aren't constantly fighting for more friends or more followers or more likes. They're not always trying to be the center of attention. Let me give you an example. Many of us, you know, as a pastor, I've encountered this a whole, a whole lot of times. I, you know, I have someone who comes for counseling or you know, someone in the church or whatever, and they've had broken relationship after broken relationship after broken relationship after broken relationship. What's the common denominator in that? Some of you just said, ouch. Because when I wrote that, I said, ouch. You, we need to stop and look at life. The fact is, if we have a trail of broken relationships, there's only one thing that's in common with all of those relationships. Why? Why do we have them? Maybe we're not meek enough. I didn't say weak enough. I didn't say that you just lay down and get beat up. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying being meek enough. John the Baptist said, we can only receive what comes to us from heaven. 
We can only receive what comes to us from heaven. In other words, I'm going to take advantage of every opportunity that comes my way, but I'm not going to try to do what only God can do. Because it's not about me. It's about God. And I'm going to give him praise and honor him for everything that I have, every person that's in my life, every opportunity that I have, because I know it's not about me. Meekness is not weakness. It's simply acknowledging who God is and who created who he created us to be. He says, you want to be happy and break meekness. And then he goes on to say, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In other words, blessed are those who are committed to doing the right thing, the right way, every time. Happy are those with no guilt, no regret, and no, and, sorry, say it again, I almost said that wrong. Happy are those with no guilt, no regret, and a clear conscience. Happy are those who are committed to doing the right thing, even when it costs you something. Pastor Josh talked about this last week. Happy are those who recognize that sin separates. Sin substitutes. Sin breaks down my relationship with myself, and sin breaks down my relationship with other people. And ultimately, sin erodes our relationship with God. Jesus says at the end of the day, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are learning in and asking the tough questions, what is the right thing to do? What is the right thing to do? What is the right thing to do? Not, what is the right thing to do for me? I'm sorry. Not really. I'm not really sorry. Man, as I was writing this sermon, my feet hurt. I'm telling you. The Holy Spirit spoke to me, and I hope that he's speaking to you. At the end of the day, you'll be happy. You'll be happy if you go to do the right thing every time, especially when no one's looking. Especially when no one's looking. Nobody says, oh, if I could go back and just make more bad decisions. Nobody ever says that, right? Well, maybe a toddler. Those of you who are parents of toddlers, maybe they would say that. But nobody says, I wish I could go back and get in trouble more. I wish I could go back to college and get suspended one more time. I wish that I could get busted by my parents just one more time. Nobody ever says that. And Jesus says, look, I know this may not be popular. I I know it may sound... Religious, but happy are those who hunger. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not politically correct. Because the politically correct thing in our culture to do is, is what about me? What's the right thing for me? That, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says those who hunger and thirst for the right thing. Period. They will be filled. But he does go on. He's not done yet. There's more. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What's mercy? I love this. I love this. Happy are the relationally generous. Happy are the relationally generous. Whether it's your kids, your friends, your former friends, your family, your family, your family. Happy are those people who give exactly, 
who give to other people exactly what they don't deserve relationally. Happy are those people who forgive. Happy are those who aren't seeking revenge. Happy are those who don't hold grudges. Oh, I hold grudges. And happy are those who don't hold grudges. What does a grudge do? It gives the person who hurt you continued power over you. That's what a grudge does. That doesn't make you happy. Frankly, I don't care if he beat you. If you hold a grudge against him, he still has power over you. And Jesus wants you to forgive. Because, you know, there's some people that beat Jesus mercilessly. And he stood on the cross with blood dripping off his body and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Let me clarify. I do care. But it's not going to help you to hold the grudge. Amen? Happy are those who are not waiting to be paid back from someone in their past. No matter how they hurt you. We all have a past. If I asked for a show of hands, everybody would raise their hand that they've had someone who's hurt them. And if you didn't, you'd be lying in church. But this is what we know. You've never met a happy, bitter person. I've never met a happy, bitter person. And I know some bitter people. I struggle with bitterness. I struggle with it. I'm going to tell you why in a minute. You've never met a happy person who holds a grudge. You've never met a happy person who's waiting to be paid back from some previous relationship. But what you have met are people who've been extraordinarily mistreated. You've met people who've gone through circumstances you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. And somehow they've emerged on the other side, and they're okay. They're scarred. They're battle-scarred. They may be dealing with some emotional things. They may be in counseling. But you know what? They're trusting in Jesus. And they have a happiness that you don't have because that's what they're doing. It's really quiet in here. You know, you've heard me tell this story before, and Kelly's told it in other places too. You know, we've been through some stuff in ministry long before we came here, where we had someone that viciously came after us. Viciously came after us. And I'm telling you, I'd, I'd stood in the shower, laid on the floor, laid in the bed, wherever it was, swearing I would never do again what I'm doing right now. Never again. I will never put myself in that position. I will never put my, my, my wife and my children in that kind of vulnerable position. I'll never do it again. Jesus said, I did. Oh, come on. Come on. So, yeah, Jesus is the perfect example for everything. Especially when it comes to forgiving others who hurt you. I doubt any of us could top him. I doubt it. I doubt it. Is, is, is it something that I'm, I'm really good at? No. Do I have to pray about it every day? Absolutely. You know, the thoughts and feelings come flooding in. I can be in a room and smell something and it all just come right back. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Because you know what? I've hurt people. I've said awful, terrible, 
hurtful things. I've spoken to my children in ways that no one should ever speak to their children. And I want to be forgiven. Do I deserve to be? No. Do I want to be? Yeah. Because I don't want my life to be defined by my worst moment. I don't think you do either. Right? You know those kinds of people. Those people who are able to just forgive and you don't understand why. They were relationally generous and even though they were never paid back, even though they were never given revenge, even though they never got an apology, they're happy. Jesus says, I understand this because happy, blessed are the merciful because they get mercy. If they give mercy, they get mercy. I need to give a whole lot more mercy. Isn't that brilliant? Isn't it brilliant? I mean, it's, 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 it's somewhat intuitive. It's like logical. But we forget so often. Then it goes on to the next one. And it's my favorite. It's my favorite, so get ready. I'm going to make you laugh a little bit on this one, I hope. Although, sometimes when I talk about this one, I cross the line and offend some people. So you may want to tuck your feet up in your seats. You may want to get into the fetal position. I'm just kidding. It's not going to be that bad. In the next statement, Jesus essentially baits us. He like casts out the line. Come on. Grab the hook. He says, would you like to see God? Would you like to see so clearly in life that you would recognize where God is at work in the world all the time? Would you like to be able to recognize God's plan for your life? Would you like to recognize what God wants you to do in tough situations, whether it has to do with your relationships, your money, your career, your family, whatever? Would you like to see clearly? Would you like to be able to see as clearly as anyone could possibly see? Would you like to be able to look at circumstances and invitations and opportunities and see what leads to trouble and what leads to regret or what leads to a place where you can be able to avoid regret? Would you like to have that kind of clarity in your life? Hmm, let me think for a minute. Would you? Yeah, of course we would. And then Jesus kind of leans. This is me picturing Jesus sitting on the rock. He kind of leans in to the crowd, just like he's leaning into us today, and says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Bam! Mic drop. Talk about not being politically correct. Pure in heart. We don't talk about purity in our culture, except we're, unless we're talking about water. We don't talk about purity because people get offended. Don't judge me. Don't tell me what I can and can't do. Friend, I'm not telling you Jesus is. And sometimes... We, we call that a little bit of holy boldness. And I'm not trying to, well, maybe I'm trying to get in your face a little bit. I'm not trying to, I'm trying to make you understand that if you want to be happy, it's going to take some work. It's going to take some work. It's not just going to happen. You're not just going to win the happiness lottery. This is one of the most profound things in the entire New Testament. Perhaps in the entire Bible. You know, in my experience as a pastor, I've talked to countless people who've said things like this. 
Brian, I just don't know how I allowed myself to get into that situation. Why didn't I see it coming? How could I have been so stupid? How could I have been so naive? Why didn't I see it coming? I've been a Christian my entire life. How did this happen? Why didn't I? Why didn't I? Why didn't I? In other words, why didn't I have the clarity I needed to stay out, to say no, to get up and leave, to walk away, and stay away? What's going on? And as gently as I know how, and you know, those of you who know me, gentleness is not always my spiritual gift. But as gently as I know how, I say, guess what? Jesus talks about this. Jesus has invited us to purity in a culture that doesn't even use the word. It's like taboo. It's automatic judgment. That's not what he's saying. Jesus says, I just want you to know that clarity in your life is found in purity. Moral purity, ethical purity, all sorts of purity. Guys, I'm going to talk to you for a second. Pornography is not purity. It's just not. You can't rationalize it away. You can't, because you're going to be away from your wife, Pornography is not purity. Pornography breaks down your soul and the soul of your spouse and objectifies things that ought not to be objectified. They were meant for purity in love and marriage between you and your spouse. Yeah, porn's not purity. There's nothing pure about it. If you want to talk about that, come and see me because there are plenty of guys who need to talk about that. And I felt really, really impressed as I was writing this sermon. I made a little note right here, handwritten note. See right there? It says porn. Because I felt the Holy Spirit say, we've got some guys that are in bondage. We've got some guys that are in bondage. And that's not what Jesus wants for us. And as long as we're in bondage, we're not going to be happy. We're not going to be happy. What Jesus is saying here is that you don't have to experience everything in life to understand life. In other words, Jesus says the opposite. If you want to have clarity about life, there's some things you probably ought to stay away from. Probably. Because staying away leads to the path of clarity. Here it is. If you've got, a, if you got your program on the back of it, you, you, I want you to write this down if you can. This is it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they have the greatest chance of identifying and seeing the activity of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they have the greatest chance to identify and see, and I would add, experience the activity of God. For some of you right now, this is a real issue because you're struggling to make a decision relationally, morally, ethically. And there's something in you that's saying doesn't feel right. This just doesn't feel right. That is the Holy Spirit talking to you, and he wants you to be pure of heart. Jesus would say, no, if you will purify your mind, if you will renew your mind, if you will chase after me, in other words, chase after Jesus, you will think his thoughts. The day will come when you will realize you weren't missing out. You'll have the clarity to see 
that following Jesus leads to happiness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Every day. This isn't talking about some abstract thing when we die when we're 85 or whatever. We're going to see God someday. He's talking about seeing God right now. If we will purify our hearts before a holy God... Let's face it, in our culture, this is difficult because there's impurity everywhere. Everywhere. No one's calling us to this. No one's reminding us of this except today. Jesus just drops it in there. It's a simple statement. It was true then and it's true today. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. That is a big idea, but he keeps going. There's still more. I'm checking my time. Make sure I get you guys out. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Remember I went back to this idea of constant conflict. Do you know any happy troublemakers? Do you know any happy troublemakers? No, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> well, a toddler, maybe. Maybe a toddler. That, that sly little grin. My, my two-year-old does that to you. It, 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 it. That's the noise she's into making now when she does something. She knows. She knows. She knows. Do you know any happy adult troublemakers? I doubt it. I doubt it. What Jesus is saying here is happy are the reconcilers. Happy are the people who are willing to walk into relationships that are broken or breaking and those who make peace. That's where happiness is found. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a Christian or not, happiness is found in mending relationships, not breaking them. Not looking for something, not, not looking for, to, for something to stir up. There's some of us who just cannot go in a day without drama. We just can't do it. We've got to fuss at somebody. We've got to put somebody down to make ourselves feel better. Blessed are the peacemakers. He goes on. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of his righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, this is where I struggle with the word happiness. Because, you know, in, in the Greek, um, it's a really fancy word that I can't pronounce, so I'm not even going to try. Um, but basically, it's talking about um, the blessed word there is fortunate are those. Some would say happy. Are those? I would say content. Content are those. Because Jesus calls us to be content in all things. Why? Because Jesus is present. And if Jesus is present, we can be content in all things. Because our trust is fully and completely in Him. Persecution and the word happiness don't go together. Right? They don't go together. But let's be clear about persecution. Some of us think we're persecuted because we lost our job, because we uh, made some really bad choices. Some of us may actually think that um, a school teacher who, who goes against the policy of a school district and does religious things in classroom are being persecuted for the name of Jesus. Friends, that's not persecution. Persecution is those, who live in the, those Christians who live in the Middle East and they're having their heads cut off because they say the name of Jesus. That's persecution. Let's be clear about what persecution means. And again, I ain't trying to be mean to you. 
I'm just trying to help you understand. We're all, everybody suffers in some way. Everybody suffers in some way. But we have this American way of, of sanitizing really big words like persecution, and we think, oh, it's all about us. We poor Americans. And our flat screen TVs and, and two cars instead of three. And yeah, it's, it's just different. It's different. It's just different. Now, should that school teacher be? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But I want us to have a healthy understanding of what it means to suffer for the name of Jesus. Everybody suffers. In this life, you're either going to suffer for doing the right thing or you're going to suffer for doing the wrong thing. Because suffering is inevitable. The difference is, if you suffer doing the right thing, you have peace with God. If you suffer for doing the wrong thing, you've got peace with nobody. You're just suffering for the sake of suffering. Who wants to do that? At least if you're suffering for the right things, God is glorified. Because he suffered for the right things. And he is our ultimate example. Right? Right. You can't be happy doing the wrong thing. And ultimately facing the consequences for a decision you should never have made. That doesn't bring happiness. That brings regret. But thankfully, there's a way out. So what's the common denominator? What's the takeaway? What's the aha moment? The aha moment is happiness is an outcome. It doesn't just happen. you got to make it happen. Happiness is more about the ultimate than the immediate. You can't buy a happiness lottery ticket. Happiness is not immediately accessible, usually. In other words, you can't hear a song, you can't read a book, you can't go walking in a garden and smell the flowers and suddenly be happy. You can't say, I was happy at 12.30 and then at 12.35, I'm back to my old habits. You can't say that. That's not what happiness is. Happy is more, happiness is more farmer than programmer. In other words, you sow and reap your way to happiness. You know what I'm talking about, sowing and reaping? If you ever dug in the dirt and planted something, that's what we're talking about, sowing and reaping. You sow and then you reap. For a lot of us, we would say, I've sown and reaped a whole lot of unhappiness. But then we expect to find happiness without doing the same thing. Jesus says, I've got some great news. You can sow your way out. You can sow your way to a blessed life. You can decide to embrace meekness. You can decide how to be relationally generous. You can decide to be a merciful person. You can decide now that from now on, I'm not going to be a divider. I'm going to be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. You can decide by God's grace from now on, even if it costs me, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to be a reconciler, not a divider. And by God's grace, even if it means I've got to get new roommates, if it means I've got to move, if it means I need to cancel some subscriptions, cancel some subscriptions, I'm going to pursue purity because I want to see God. You know what really bugs me? I, you know, I love to watch football with my son, and if you've been around my son more than two seconds, you know he loves football a whole lot. I hate watching a football game and seeing a whole bunch of junk on the commercials. How how do you pursue purity in that environment? We have a lot of conversations. Happiness is an outcome. It's a result. You sow and reap your words there. 
But this is how Jesus wraps it up. This is how Jesus wraps it up. He says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, now remember, they've all heard them. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. That's the phrase right there. Not, oh, that was really good, I wrote that down. Ah, that was really good. I needed to hear this. Ah, that was convicting. He doesn't say anybody who shows up for church and hears a good message. And this is a good message, y'all. He doesn't say that. He says those who take the words that he's speaking to them out the door and puts them into practice. That's what he says. Everyone who hears these words to mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Now we've all heard, well, many of us have heard that song. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house. Okay, I'm not going to sing anymore. We've all heard that song. A brand new house built by a builder is not easily accessible. It's not immediately accessible. It takes time, right? Let that sink in. You probably never thought about this parable that way before. You're just thinking about a house that's already built on a rock. We're not talking about a manufactured home. We're talking about a builder who's building a house. If you've ever built a house, you know it takes some time. You don't just get to walk in the door. It takes some time to build a house. But then Jesus says, The person who hears what I said and decides from this day forward, from this point on, I'm going to do things differently. It's like a person who began the process of building a house on solid rock. Began the process of building a house on solid rock. Nothing changed immediately. But something changed eventually. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. The house didn't move when the rains came down and the floods came up. But on the flip side, he also says next, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice... Anyone who hears these words of mine just walks away and doesn't actually do anything. May talk about it, but don't do anything. You get no credit for being in church. The only benefit is in doing. Doing is what makes all the difference. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rains came up and the flood, rains came down and the floods came up and the house washed away. But get this, pay attention. Again, you never thought about this parable this way before. Think about this. It took the same amount of time for that guy to build his house on the sand as it took for the guy to build his house on the rock. It took the same amount of time. The problem is they didn't, the guy who built his house on the sand didn't build it on a firm foundation. So it didn't last. Again, there was no immediate result because they were building a house. But eventually... There was a house there that was built on a foundation that didn't sustain it. There was no immediate return, but there was eventually a consequence. Everything that they had was destroyed because they built their house on sand. Happiness. Please don't ever forget this. 
Please don't ever forget this. Happiness is an outcome. Happiness is a result. You sow and reap your way to happiness. And here's the fantastic thing. It's why we do what we do. It's why we invite people to church. It's why we do this every single week. Jesus pointed the way. But better than that, he has invited you. He has invited me to follow him. And if we were to say, Jesus, what makes a person happy? He would say, everything I told you, follow me, sow your way here. Do something. Do something. Don't just pray about it. Praying about it's good, but don't just pray about it. Do something different. Do something different. So let's step back and review for a second. We're going to set up for next week right now. I'm going to ask the question again. But now we have two answers. So here's the question. What makes you happy? We all know the first answer from last week. No thing. No thing makes you happy. Second, sewing. Sewing makes you happy. What makes you happy? No thing. It's more about a who than a what. And what makes you happy according to Jesus? Sewing and reaping good things. Go ahead and bow your heads and let's reflect a little bit. And we're going to pray together. Look, I believe that the joy of the Lord is attainable for all of us. I believe it. There are some of us who walked in here miserable from the weight of whatever's going on in our lives. But Jesus says you don't have to walk out that way. You really don't have to walk out of that way. Whether you are a follower of Jesus or you're not, you don't have to walk out that way. If you haven't made that decision to follow after Jesus, today's your day. Today's your day. He is calling out to you and He wants to begin to show you the way to happiness like you've never experienced before. If that's you, I want you to listen to me really carefully. Keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed. This is what I want you to do. I want you to repeat after me. You can say it out loud. You can say it inside your head. As my daughter says, talk in my head. You can do whatever. Jesus is going to hear you either way. But say this prayer with me. Lord, I need you. Jesus, I understand my happiness is completely dependent on you. Forgive me. Forgive me. I choose a different path. I will go a different way. I will forgive others. I will pursue purity. Forgive me. In Jesus' name. You just made the most important decision you're ever going to make in your life. If you prayed that prayer, you just made the most important decision you're ever going to make in your life. For the rest of us who call ourselves Christ followers, who... In every way we think we know how, we go after Jesus. Many of us struggle with many of these things. Whether it's purity or meekness or troublemaking or whatever. Sowing and reaping. Many of us find ourselves in a place where we need to build our house on a firm foundation. I want to pray with you. I'm going to pray for you, but I want to pray with you. Because I can't do it for you. I want to. I had a conversation with a girl this week who said, you know, how do you, how do you deal with the fact that people hear all these great things and they don't do anything differently? I can't, I can't do it for you. 
I want to, but I can't. But if that's you today, and you say, Pastor Brian, something that you've said today has stirred inside of me, and I want to choose different things. I Whatever it is, you know what it is. God knows what it is. You can tell me about it later if you want to. But if that's you, every, every eye closed, every head bowed, this is between you and God and me. I want to see your hands. I believe the Lord is saying to me, I need to make some different choices. Show me your hand. Show me your hand. The Lord has spoken to me and said it's time to do something differently. The way that I've been doing it isn't working. I want to do something differently. Hands are going up all over the place. That's awesome. Who else? Now's the time. If you want it to be different, now's the time. Take that step right now. Don't be afraid. Fear isn't coming from the Holy Spirit. Fear is coming from the one who's trying to keep you where you are. Make the choice right now. I will agree with you if you will agree with me. Who else? Who else? I'm ready to make a different choice. I want to make a different choice. Lord, you've seen hands go up all over this room. And we as a body of believers and those who have come here to learn more about you, we believe that you can make all the difference. Lord, I don't know what the situation is in any of these lives. I don't know what any of it is, but you do. So Lord, I pray that you would move in every heart. That you would empower people all over this room that when they get up out of this seat and they walk out of this door, they're not going to forget this moment. They're not going to forget the grace of the Holy Spirit that is being laid at their feet right now. They're going to pick it up, they're going to take it with them, and they're going to make different choices this week by your grace. That's what I believe. That's what I believe. And we're not going to accept anything less. Because our happiness is found completely and totally in who you are. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for moving today. Thank you for making a difference today. Give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard. Give us the courage to follow through. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We always appreciate hearing how God is moving in your life. We all have a story to tell, and we'd love to hear yours. Please visit verticalchurch.tv and click on the little pencil icon called Amen Corner to tell us your story. Also, if you'd like to support the ministry of Vertical Church financially, you can do so by clicking the giving link at verticalchurch.tv. Thank you again for taking the time to join us as we point those far from God to life in Jesus.